Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to Tuesday, August 15th. Can you believe it? We're just about at the midpoint of the month of August, and as I was telling one of my cohorts just a moment ago, it seems like just yesterday was Memorial Day weekend, and how quickly the time is flying by. Uh, Maybe it's a matter of our reference to age. I hope not, but it sure seems that way. Anyhow, this is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you today from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashpee, Massachusetts. And if you're just getting up today, you're realizing it's not the best day. We're looking to have rain all morning, probably at least through about 1 p.m. today, often on rain. So it's not the best weather outlook for today. But... Today aside, let's take a look at what we have coming up in the days ahead. Let's look more specifically at today, the 15th of August. We're going to have a high of 75 degrees. We're going to have heavy rain at times and a thunderstorm in the morning. Heavy rain we've already had, but we may have more in store. And it looks like that rain is going to continue at least up through 1 o'clock this afternoon and maybe some scattered showers between 4 and 6 p.m. later today. Now tonight it's going to be 67 degrees, uh, humid, and a thunderstorm early and then partly cloudy thereafter. Moving on to Wednesday and Thursday, it looks a little better as far as our outlook goes. Wednesday's high temperature will be 76, and Thursday's will be 77. Mostly cloudy and humid with a shower again on Wednesday, and partly sunny and humid on Thursday. Looking further into the week at Friday, Get some sunshine. It's going to be humid, but there's a shower or thunderstorm in the area as well. But we have the possibility of some sun with a high back in the 80s at 80 degrees and a low of 61. Looking at the water temperatures today out on Cape Cod Bay, 65 degrees with wave heights 1 to 2 feet and the wind at 7 to 14 knots. Out on Nantucket Sound, the water temperature is 67 degrees. And that's pretty interesting because this is the first time in the last several weeks that the water temperatures of both Nantucket Sound and Cape Cod Bay are very similar, in this case within 2 degrees of one another, because as most of you know, Cape Cod Bay is usually quite colder than Nantucket Sound. Temperatures across the Cape are consistent, as they always are. On the other side, Wareham, 75, Mashpee, 76, Hyatta, 75, Dennis, 74, and moving out along to the elbow at Chatham, 74, Brewster, 75, East Ham, 74, Truro, 73, and Provincetown, 72 degrees today. Out on Martha's Vineyard... And Nantucket, similar conditions at 76 at Oak Bluffs on the Vineyard and 
it's a concert. It is 75 on Nantucket. So similar temperatures and conditions throughout the Cape. Not the best day today. So if you've got errands to run, places to go, things to do that don't require good weather outside, now would be the time to do that. So there you have it, a capsulization of the weather through uh, Friday of this week. And let's move on now today to our reading of the Cape Cod Times for Tuesday, August 15th, and we'll turn to page one. Well, as we look at page one, there's a couple articles here of local interest. And as most of you know who do follow us on somewhat of a regular basis, what we try to do in reading the paper is to focus on the articles of local or regional interest first and then go to the national articles as time allows. So starting with the local articles today on page one here, it says $2 million will buy buy Airport Rescue Firefighting Vehicles. This article is by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times Network. And here, friends, is the article. New rescue and firefighting vehicles at the Nantucket and Hyannis airports will be purchased with federal funding, as announced Thursday by U.S. Senator Edward Markey, a Democrat, of course, from Massachusetts. More than $14 million in federal funding was awarded to several public and regional airports in Massachusetts, including Nantucket Memorial Airport and Cape Cod Gateway Airport in Hyannis, according to a statement from Senator Markey's office. The funding came from the Federal Aviation Administration Airport Improvement Program and includes nearly $1.1 million for the Nantucket Airport and $880,000 for the Hyannis Airport. Massachusetts families and visitors deserve safe, reliable air travel to and from the Cape and Islands, Markey said in an email. Cape Cod Gateway Airport manager Katie Service said the funding will go towards acquiring new aircraft rescue and firefighting vehicles. We had the replacement of a 1991 aircraft rescue and firefighting vehicle on our capital budget plan for quite some time, service said. And this announcement was the fiscal year 2024 funds that came from the Federal Aviation Administration to enable us to buy that piece of equipment. Nantucket Memorial Airport manager Noah Carborg said in an email the airport will also use the funds to replace their own 20-year-old firefighting and rescue vehicle. In Hyannis, using federal funds for planned capital improvements, that statement leads us into this next paragraph. Service said the funding is part of the airport's capital improvement plan, a way of acquiring funds through the federal agency in order to meet service and operational needs. Anytime that we're able to use those entitlement funds and we get approval of grants, obviously that makes us very happy. It makes it a lot easier to run our operation at the airport, she said. So investment is needed to prepare for runway emergencies. Well, Markey worked alongside his colleagues to make the investments needed to prepare for emergencies on the local runways and protect passengers for decades to come, according to the email. Funding for Cape Cod Gateway Airport in Hyannis follows 
$9.8 million in federal funding secured by Markey and U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, as well as U.S. Representative William Keating in January. In March, Markey introduced legislation that would direct the U.S. Secretary of Transportation to create a pilot program to provide grants to airports for the planning design and construction of projects that improve their climate resilience and to ensure airports are ready to respond to climate change, extreme weather events, and national disasters. Carberg said in the email that Nantucket Memorial Airport will only use fluorine-free foam in the new firefighting vehicle, which recognizes the importance of clean water to both our communities and is consistent with Senator Markey's priorities. All right, friends, there you have it, an article that talks about grant monies, federal monies from the Federal Aviation Administration for both the Hyannis and the Nantucket airports and the fact that they'll be buying new equipment and vehicles with that money. A good thing for both airports. All right, moving on. This next article on page one, accompanied by a picture of a jubilant born team in the Cape Cod Baseball League. And this article on the front page is entitled Born Again. It says the Braves claim back-to-back Cape Cod Baseball League titles. It's by Andre Sims of the Cape Cod Times Network. Here's the article. If the best two words in sports are Game 7, then the Cape Cod Baseball League equivalent has to be Game 3. The 2023 season came down to its final day as the Bourne Braves and the Orleans Firebirds squared off with everything on the line. In the end, the Bourne Braves emerged as 5-2 winners and claimed their second consecutive Cape Cod Baseball League title. Winner-take-all games in sports have always provided a platform for iconic performances to help their teams win. Prior to Sunday night's Game 3 victory, Bourne manager Scott Lander said the team had an idea of who could rise to the occasion. The manager said, I'm not going to say who said it, but the guy said that Derek Bender needs to step up and he's going to step up said the manager. Whoever it was, they couldn't have been more right. The Coastal Carolina product delivered repeatedly when his team needed him. His RBI single in the fourth inning got the Braves on the board, reducing the early deficit to two to one. Two innings later, he came through again. His RBI double plated Bryce Elbin from the University of Alabama and gave the Braves their first lead of the evening. And in the eighth inning, he added the exclamation point. On an 0-2 pitch, Bender turned around a fastball and sent it rocketing off the scoreboard in the left for a solo home run. That blast made it 5-2 and put the Braves out of reach for the night. It was euphoria after the game. Euphoric is how Bender described the way he was feeling after the game. I'll cherish this moment this summer, the people I got to meet, the memories I made along the way forever. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It is awesome. 
On the night, Bender finished 3-for-4 with three RBIs and two runs scored, and to top it all off, he did it with his parents, Dennis and Diane Bender, in attendance. His father, Dennis, was understandably emotional after seeing his son summit the Summer League mountaintop and reflected on just how far he's come. It's surreal and very emotional, his father said, his voice breaking. He's dreamed about this, being part of the Cape Cod Baseball League, and he fulfilled his dream. There's more to Derek Bender than the baseball player. He's someone who approaches each day with a different level of appreciation than most because he's seen the other side. The statement, a loss of a high school classmate, leads us into the next paragraph. As part of the name, image, and likeness deal he received at Coastal Carolina, Bender will be starting a foundation for suicide prevention, something that hit close to home when he lost a high school classmate, Ahmad Prelude, to suicide in 2021. It was something that shook a lot of us up in the community, Bender said. It's really inspired me to live life the way he did. My goal is to put a smile on everybody's face that I can really get in touch with and spread my message. Spread Ahmad's message, if you will, and spread awareness for a cause that's really near and dear to my heart. That selflessness is what makes his father so proud. And it's happening because of his baseball abilities. Getting to watch his son achieve Cape Cod immortality has just been the icing on the cake. Although it was Bender's turn to be the hero Sunday night, the 2023 Braves team is the champion because it's just that, a team. Their belief in each other is unwavering, and they've come together to form an inseparable bond with one another this summer, and it only benefited them on the field. We put it all together at the right time, said shortstop Jonathan Vastine. We go through skids together, and we still stay up. We stayed within reach of each other, and that's the most important part. We built a brotherhood, and we created friendships that will last a lifetime. Vastine's double play partner, Josh Karuda Grauer from Rutgers, was awarded the 2023 Playoff MVP Award following a 2023 postseason where he had a hit in all eight games and hit an average of 4-4-4 with a pair of home runs, 13 RBIs, and nine runs scored. Both Vastine and Karuda Grauer were effusive in their praise of each other showcasing the type of bond this team has. Vastine said Karuder Grauer was overwhelmingly deserving of the MVP award, while Karuder Grauer said Vastine is the best shortstop he's ever shared the infield with. So togetherness drives their success. It's that togetherness that has driven the success. Those who watched this year's Brave team saw it on full display every night. Just do it with this group of guys. Just the amount of fun we've all had up here to do it as a team, it is so special, Karuda Grauer said. The Braves are the first repeat Cape Cod League champion since the Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox had a three-peat from 2014 through 2016. It marks a personal three-peat for Landers, 
who was a member of the title-winning 2021 Brewster Whitecaps staff prior to winning two straight as manager of the Braves. I'm extremely, extremely excited. It never gets old, but for this group, Landers said, I'm just really proud of what they've accomplished and how they've grown as baseball players and as young men. It all means that the curtain has closed on the 2023 Cape Cod Baseball League season. The league's centennial season ends with the Braves alone at the top, they are indeed again the Cape Cod League champions. So congratulations to the Bourne Braves 2023 champions of the Cape Cod Baseball League. Sorry to see that come to an end, but we will look favorably toward next season and a possible three-peat by the Bourne Braves as these young men return to their various respective universities to play there. All right, let's move on, friends. And here on page two of today's August 15th Cape Cod Times, we find an article headlined by the statement, Boil Water Advisory Because of E. coli Continues in Bourne. This article is by Graham Crewinghouse of the Cape Cod Times staff. And here is the article. A boil water order for residents of the Bourne Water District will remain in place at least until... Tuesday afternoon, that's today. A second test of drinking water in the district, which lies on the south side of the Cape Cod Canal, led water district officials to announce on Monday that the boil order would continue. They acknowledged the frustration some residents have experienced due to the order, which has been in effect since last Friday. The order applies only to residents on the south side of the Cape Cod Canal, all the way to the border with Falmouth. The Sagamore Water District and Buzzards Bay Water District on the north side of the canal are not affected. So why was the boil water order issued? Well, the order comes after a test revealed the presence of E. coli in the water supply, according to a statement from Town Administrator Marlene McCollum this past Friday. Immediately after identifying the positive samples, water district officials contacted the State Department of Environmental Protection and a boil water order was issued. Residents are now instructed to boil the water for at least one minute prior to use for a range of activities including cooking, drinking, washing dishes, and food preparation. Any ice, Beverages, formula, or uncooked foods that were prepared with water from the public system on or after August 10th should be thrown out. Now repeat that. Any ice, beverages, formula, or uncooked foods that were prepared with water from the public water system on or after August 10th, that's five days ago, should be thrown out. Residents are instructed to take the same precaution for pets. They should be given bottled water or boiled water that is cooled. Water from any appliance connected to the water line, such as ice and water from a refrigerator, should not be used for pets while under a boil water order. A Bourne District water release on Friday projected that the issue would be resolved within 48 to 72 hours, but on Monday the district issued another release saying the order would have to remain for the time being. 
We understand that this is frustrating. However, we are following all required protocols and working as quickly as possible to restore safe drinking water to all of our residents, a statement released by the Water District said. So water was tested Monday. District officials tested the water again on Monday morning after a Saturday test revealed contamination, the district said. That leaves them with a Tuesday afternoon timeline, that's today, to get back those results and determine if the water is now safe to drink. State Representative Steve Zeros, Republican from Barnstable, took to Facebook on Monday to comment saying, many Bourne residents have reached out regarding the water quality issue on the south side of the town of Bourne, he wrote. I'm working with the Bourne Water District, Bourne officials, and others to resolve the water issue as soon as possible. So, who do you call if you have questions? Well, the Bourne Water District residents with questions can contact Robert Prophet by calling 508 563 2294 or 508-209-4863. Additional information regarding drinking water, boil order orders, boil water orders, and other public health orders can be found on the State Department of Environmental website. I'll repeat those numbers again. The name is Robert Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-T, of the Bourne Water District. And the number where he can be reached is 508 508- Five six three two two nine four or five zero eight two zero nine four eight six three. All right, friends, there you have it. The article regarding the boil order for the water in Bourne on the south side of the canal. And you should be hearing, I would suggest, listening to your radio, checking phone mess, whatever you use for news as there should be some results released this afternoon regarding whether or not that boil order remains in effect for Bourne. All right, let's move on. Let's now take a look at the various lottery results. I did remember to bring my phone, and I will check it from there and share that information with you since the paper no longer seems to print the lottery results. As most of you know, last week's huge jackpot in the Mega Millions of over $1.5 billion, that's right, billion with a B, was won by a single person, just one person in the state of Florida. Can you imagine the number of tickets that are being bought? Well, the odds, of course, are well over $300 million to one, but somebody's going to win, so you might as well play, I guess. S- small investment of a couple bucks to possibly win a huge amount. Anyhow, the Mega Millions drawing, which will be held today, tonight at 11, has a jackpot projected to be $36 million. The drawing for Powerball, which will be tomorrow at 11 o'clock, has a jackpot of $236 million. So, in checking the latest numbers for the wins, let's see what... In yesterday's numbers game, that's for Monday, August 14th, the midday drawing, those numbers were 7941. Again, Monday, August 14th, midday numbers drawing, 7941. For yesterday's August 14th evening drawing, those numbers were 99. 
9-9-3-7. Again, the evening drawing for the numbers game, 9-9-3-7. The mass cash numbers for yesterday, August 14th, were these. 9-11-12-17-35. Repeating mass cash for yesterday, August 14th, 9-11-12-17-35. The Mega Millions drawing numbers from the most recent drawing, which was Friday, August 11th, were these. 8, 9, 18, 35, 41, with a power ball of 18. Again, I'll repeat those. 8, 9, 18, 35, 41, and the power ball was 18. Those are the numbers from last Friday's Mega Millions all right, friends, those are the most recent, up-to-date references to the various jackpots for Mega Millions and the Powerball, and the numbers I gave you were the most recent for the various lottery games. Hopefully, maybe you won something. If not, keep trying. As I always say, good luck, players. Moving on now to page three, the Cape and Islands. Here on the Cape and Islands page, there is one article of local interest, and it's otherwise filled with huge ads. Anyhow, let's take a look at this one article which says, Brewster Labradoodles are declared nuisances. It's by Susan Vaughn of the Cape Cod Times Network, obviously a dateline of Brewster. And here is the article. Two golden Labradoodles belonging to a high-profile lawyer, have been declared nuisance dogs by the Brewster Select Board after a resident claimed one of them bit her in a town conservation area. Brewster resident Tanya St. Germain told the board during a dangerous dog hearing Thursday that she was, quote, viciously attacked and bitten, end quote, by what she called standard poodles, resulting in severe puncture wounds on June 14th on the Hay Conservation Public Walking Trails. Two of the dogs belonged to Parisis G. Philippatos, that's spelled F-I-L-I-P-P-A-T-O-S, commonly referred to as Jerry, and his wife, Britta Cleveland, who also testified Thursday. A third dog belongs to their daughter, who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and was not considered in the ruling. The Brewster Select Board ruled 4-1 to to give the dogs the label nuisance, and thus required certain restrictions upon the dog. So here's a question. Who is Parisis G. Philippatos? Well, the answer is, Philippatos is a lawyer based in White Plains, New York, who represents employees in high-level cases of gender discrimination or harassment. He recently won a $12 million settlement for former Fox News producer Abby Grossberg in a case against the network regarding a hostile and discriminatory workplace. He has homes in New York and Brewster. Philippitos, Philippatos, rather, and Cleveland, his wife, were represented by Hyannis attorney David Lawyer, Lawler at the hearing, and a St. Germain, a retired lawyer, represented herself and was the one who requested the hearing. 
So what is a nuisance dog? Well, the state law, Chapter 140, Section 157, defines a nuisance dog, quote, by reason of vicious disposition or excessive barking or other disturbance, end quote. But the law provides local officials discretion to protect the public safety based on particular facts. So what happened at the Hayes Conservation Trail that day? Well, at the hearing, St. Germain showed the bite marks on both legs in photos and in person, which she said were level four wounds based on a score and scale of one to six, and called Dr. Ian Dunbar's dog bite scale as a reference. Brewster Police Officer Freddie O'Neill, who first arrived at the scene of the incident, verified the wounds as dog bites. St. Germain said she was walking her leashed dog, Oakley, a male boxer mix, when she saw the three dogs walking toward her from another trail, but did not see the owners. She called loudly for them to leash their dogs, but heard no response and pulled her dog nearer to her. Three were barking and growing as they aggressively attacked, she said. It was terrifying. I was screaming, no, no, get your dogs, as loudly as I could. I still did not see the owners. She said the largest of the two brown and white dogs bit her on the inner right thigh, and later she found a second bite on her left thigh. The dog had time to bite me twice before the owner finally appeared and leashed it, she said in a written statement. Philippatos said he did not see his dog bite anyone. Philippatos claimed that he was only a few seconds away from the dogs when he heard St. Germain's, quote, blood-curdling screams, end quote. He said in his testimony that his vision of the dogs was hindered by a curve in the trail and the woods. When they heard the screams, he said his wife ran ahead and called the dogs back. All the dogs were barking, he said. Philippados denied St. Germain's claim that he pulled a dog off her leg. When town attorney Greg Corbo questioned whether Philippados saw any of the dogs biting St. Germain, he said, quote, absolutely not, end quote. Lawler said Philippados' dogs were too small to have bitten St. Germain that high up on her legs. We, bit, we did the best we could under the circumstances. We feel very badly about it, Filippato said, but added, I'm sure it wasn't our dog that bit her. He did concede, however, that the dogs should have been on a leash under the conservation rule, but that he wasn't aware of it and had seen many other unleashed dogs there. Hmm. The couple claimed the dogs had never bitten anyone and were well-behaved around other dogs in the dog park and in their neighbors' yards. Na neighbors backed them up in a written statement. When ruling the dogs as nuisances, the dissenting vote came from Brewster Select Board cha Chairman Ned Chatelaine, who was not convinced that there was enough evidence to show the bites were from the Philippados' dog, since St. Germain could not identify clearly which dog had bitten her. Her own dog could have bitten her, he said. St. Germain said she felt her description was indeed sufficient. So what does the ruling mean for those Labradoodles? Well, the board required the dogs, Roki and Remy, to be leashed at all times in public places and held by one responsible adult, except in the Brewster Dog Park, which does not require leashing. 
The board also required proof of a ten of a hundred thousand dollar insurance policy on their dogs, and that they comply with all rules and regulations on other properties, namely those owned by the Brewster Conservation Trust. Board member Mary Chafee initially proposed stronger restrictions to the nuisance designation requested by St. Germain, including muzzling the dogs in public, using a short leash, and being controlled individually by two adults. We are here about public safety, she said. A Brewster resident has received puncture wounds and was the only party as a witness. Other board members thought those requirements were too strong, so Chafee amended her motion. Board member Dave Whitney said he was concerned that future altercations could occur because the parties involved lived on the same street and used the same walking area. Lawler argued also that the restriction of walking the dog separately would be a tremendous inconvenience to Cleveland as her husband works off Cape. Animal Control Officer Linda Brogdon Burtons also put all the dogs under 10-day quarantine after the incident and released them after they appeared healthy and showed no signs of rabies. Does Brewster require dogs to be leashed at all times? Well, the state general law, Chapter 140, Section 173, requires dogs to be leashed at all times in public. The Brewster bylaw requires leashing except when the dog can be under control of the owner without a leash. So what happens next? Well, Philippados said they hired a dog trainer after the incident, which has helped a lot with barking. They also obtained town dog licenses that had lapsed and installed a fence around their entire property. He said they would no longer let their dogs off the property to be with other dogs after a neighbor had claimed they had been harassing her chickens. We intend to abide by the law and walk the dogs on a leash, Philippados told Corbo which obviously we should have done in the first After the hearing, however, Philippados and Lawler said they planned to appeal the board's ruling. They would not say how or where they planned to appeal. The state law states that the owner or keeper of the aggrieved dog may file an appeal in the local district within 10 days after the order is issued. The district court justice hears testimony to determine if a dog is a nuisance or is a dangerous dog. St. Germain, the person bitten, questioned the ruling but said she would abide by the board's decision. I want to feel safe from the owners, the dogs, and be allowed on the trail free of concern, she said. She said she has incurred medical bills and emotional trauma and no longer feels safe walking in the neighborhood or along the trail. All right, I don't think we've heard the end of that story, so I'm sure there'll be more coming out on that in the days or weeks ahead. All right, friends, let's move. All right, moving on to maybe, hopefully, a little bit lighter side. We'll go to the Ask Carolyn column, where people write in and ask Carolyn Hacks, who is the author of this column, to respond to their concerns, questions, or dilemmas. The article here is entitled, Best Friend Pretended for Years to Live Farther Away Than She Actually Did. Oh, intriguing. All right, here's the letter. Dear Carolyn, Mary and I have been friends for 28 years. To say we are best friends is an understatement. 
There is nothing we haven't been through. Together, that is. Marriages, divorces, births, deaths, good times, bad times. Over the years, there have been a few bumps, sometimes more than a bump, but I've rolled with it. And we continue to be the best of friends. Ten years ago, after a divorce, she moved 45 minutes away. This past weekend, she told me as she is back with her ex-husband, which I suspected, and she's been living 10 minutes away from me for years. Years, that is. She has been lying to me all this time. My Christmas cards came back entitled, Forwarding Order Expired. And she said indignantly, I will have to go to the post office about that. Well, when we go for a girl's night out, we text each other, Home so we know the other has arrived safely. So she would wait 45 minutes to text me. I keep thinking of all these things. She tried to explain how she felt sheepish admitting she had gone back to her ex, etc. And a week went to a month, to a year, but nothing she says makes this right. I finally said I don't want to discuss it anymore. I told her I sincerely hope she gets help because this is too much. So now I want to move on, tie a balloon to it, let it go, but I can't. Should I just let it go? Signed, Illinois. An interesting dilemma, so let's hear Carolyn's response. Dear Illinois, since 28 years of best friendship offer 28 arguments for letting it go, and since you still can't get past the crazy but haven't cut ties, I'm guessing you want a rationale for her behavior that makes better sense than the one she provided. So I'll give it a try. Every exchange between two people, every, everyone, involves both people. Sometimes the responsibility splits 50-50, sometimes 99 to 1. From the tone of your letter, it appears you see this as a 99.9% .9 her issue. Certainly Mary earns well over half the credit just for the boldness and bulk of her lies. Still, when someone is so afraid to admit the truth, the natural question is why? Can a character defect in Mary explain it all? Has the trajectory of her behavior been leading her here? Or is it possible? She also had the oldest motivation in the book, which is fear of punishment, consequences, or getting in trouble. So please ask yourself whether you've been the safest, most forgiving place for Mary to bring her frailties over the years. Maybe think back to some of the bumps you previously mentioned to see whether any of them can be traced to your impatience with Mary's foibles. You do say, I rolled with it, not we rolled with it, which is somewhat telling. Even reflect on things you've said not about Mary, but to her that might prove you have high expectations and contempt for those who may, may not meet your expectations. I float this idea not to accuse, for all I know, Mary earns 99.9% .9 credit for this mess. It's just that letting go often follows forgiveness. And forgiveness often follows recognition of our own frailty, even our 0.1%. Try saying to Mary, I'm sorry I wasn't someone you felt you could tell this news to. See if that balloon flies. All right, there you have it. Kind of an interesting dilemma. And I guess some fairly decent advice. All right, now let's move. Well, it's at this point in our broadcast that we typically take a look at the various obituaries in today's August 15th, Cape Cod Times. 
And today we'll do that now. We only have one obituary today, and it's rather brief. It is of Janet Perks, that's spelled P-E-R-K-S, has a dateline of Mashpee. Here's the obituary. Janet Perks of Mashpee passed away on Friday, August 11, 2023, at Cape Cod Hospital. She was the longtime companion of Raymond W. Deschanel. Born in Newport, Rhode Island, she was the daughter of the late Sidney Perks and Rocha, Rhoda Spach Mata. She is survived by her twin sister, Jane Boucher of Buzzards Bay, Corey Perks of Mashpee, and Gary Perks of Pismo Beach, California. Janet leaves behind many nieces and nephews. She loved her time at the beach, winters in Florida, and involvement with her many crafts. A celebration of her life will be announced at a later date. Arrangements are being made by the Nickerson-born Funeral Home on Route 154, or route, route, I'm sorry, address is 154 Route 6A in Sandwich. That is the obituary of Janet Perks, P-E-R-K-S, of Mashby. All right, now, friends, we are approximately 40 minutes into today's 60-minute broadcast, and the, we have exhausted the local and regional articles, so we'll now turn to news of national interest. First up is an article entitled, Grand Jury Returns Indictment in Georgia. Panel has been probing Donald Trump's role in the election. This article is by Kate Brumbach of the Associated Press with a dateline of Atlanta. And here is the article. A grand jury in Georgia that has been investigating former President Donald Trump over his efforts to undo the 2020 election results in that state returned at least one indictment Monday, though it was not immediately clear against whom. Documents were presented around 9 p.m. by the county clerk's court to the Fulton County judge, who for months has been presiding over the investigation. The grand jury heard from witnesses into the evening Monday in the election subversion investigation into Donald Trump, a long day of testimony punctuated by the mysterious and brief appearance on a county website of a list of criminal charges against the former president that prosecutors later disavowed. Prosecutors in Fulton County presented evidence to the grand jury as they pushed toward a likely indictment summoning former federal state officials, including the ex-lieutenant governor, as witnesses. But the process hit an unexpected snag in the middle of the day when Reuters reported on a document listing criminal charges to be brought against Trump, including state racketeering counts, conspiracy to commit false statements, and solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. Reuters News Service, which later published a copy of the document, said the filing was taken down quickly. A spokesperson for the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, said the report of charges being filed was inaccurate, but declined to comment further on a kerfuffle that the Trump legal team rapidly jumped on to attack the integrity of the investigation. The Office of the Fulton County Court's clerk later released a statement that seemed to only raise more questions, calling the posted document fictitious, but failing to explain how it got on the court's website. The clerk's office said documents without official case numbers are not considered official filings and should not be treated as such. 
but the document that appeared online did have a case number on it. Asked about the fictitious document Monday evening, the court's clerk, Che Alexander, said, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like Grace, I don't know. I haven't seen an indictment, right? So I don't have anything. On the question of whether the website had been hacked, she said, I can't speak to that. Trump and his allies, who characterized the investigation as politically motivated, immediately seized on the apparent error to claim the process was rigged. Trump's campaign aimed to raise funds off it, sending out an email with a since-deleted document embedded. The grand jury testimony has not even finished, but it's clear the district attorney has already decided how this case will end. Trump wrote an email which included links to give money to his campaign. Since the release of this initial article, it has been stated that a grand jury in Georgia has indicted former President Donald Trump and 18 allies on racketeering charges for a sweeping attempt to corrupt the 22 2020 election, rather, by subverting Joe Biden's victory in the state. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis leveled the charges Monday night after a two-year investigation that also tagged Trump with allegations that he conspired to derail the Electoral College process, marshaled the Justice Department to bolster his scheme, pressured Georgia officials to undo the election results, and repeatedly lied about fraud allegations to ratchet up the pressure. In addition to Trump, Willis charged former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and attorneys Ruli Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Jeff Clark, Ken Cheesebro, and Jenna Ellis, key figures in Trump's bid to subvert the 2020 election. The 98-page indictment tracks several well-known aspects of Trump's conduct in the chaotic weeks that followed his defeat, in the November 3, 2020 election, many of which were aired by the House January 6th Select Committee and more recently in a federal indictment obtained by Special Counsel Jack Smith. But Willis's indictment was breathtaking in its scope and the first to charge the coterie of Trump enablers with crimes for their efforts to help facilitate his bid to remain in power despite losing the election. The indictment contains 41 total felony counts, 13 of which were lodged against Trump. The rest of the allegations, or the allegations rather, rest on several key components. Trump's bid to assemble false slates of presidential electors to foment a controversy aimed at derailing the transfer of power. A pressure campaign by Trump, Giuliani, Eastman, and others aimed at Georgia officials with responsibility for certifying the presidential election. Also, the filing of false claims of ballot fraud in court documents associated with a last-ditch lawsuit by Trump to upend the results in Georgia. Also, a breach of sensitive elective election equipment by Trump-aligned officials in Coffee County, Georgia. Kathleen Latham, one of Trump's false electors, was charged for her role in this effort. And finally, a campaign of harassment and false claims against Ruby Freeman, an election worker who became the target of pro-Trump conspiracy theories about voter fraud. All right, there you have it, friends, an article about former President Donald Trump having been indicted in Georgia on numerous felony counts. All right, that's his fourth indictment. 
And without further ado, let's move on and talk about the wildfires in Maui. And this article is entitled, Maui Clings to Hope Through Loss. A subtitle says the community comes together as the death toll climbs. This is an Associated Press article, and it has a dateline of Kapalua, Hawaii. Here's the article. For scores of families in Hawaii still hoping to reunite with loved ones, it was not yet time to give up. Even as the staggering death toll continued to grow, and even as authorities predicted that more remains would be found within the ashes left behind by a wildfire that gutted the once bustling town of Lahaina. But many others are already confronting a painful reality. That is, their loved ones did not make it out alive. At a Sunday Mass at a church in Kapalua, the Most Reverend Clarence Larry Silva, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Honolulu, appeared and appealed to somber parishioners not to abandon their faith. If we are angry with God, we should tell him so. He can take it, he said in his sermon, adding that later, God loves us in tragedies and good times and bad times. Taufa Semisoni sat in the pews with his wife, mournful over the loss of an aunt, uncle, a cousin, and a grandnephew. They tried to flee but did not get far, engulfed in an inferno, while in their car just outside their home. His wife, Catalina, in a quivering voice, spoke about the faith that the apostle Peter had to walk on water. Like Peter, she said, we will get to shore. Thus far, the remains of more than 90 people have been pulled from flattened homes, blackened cars, or on streets just a few strides from their front doors. Unable to outrun the smoke and flames that were just too fast and too ferocious. On Saturday, Governor Josh Green told residents to brace for more grim news. Crews and cadaver-sniffing dogs will certainly find more of the missing within the obstructions, he said. He predicted the tragedy could rank as Hawaii's deadliest natural disaster ever. It was an ominous signal of the anguish to come in the months ahead. Mourners will file into houses of worship, then somberly gather at gravesites to say final goodbyes. The scenes will be repeated over and over, though how many times yet no one knows. Maui officials declined to respond to phone calls, text messages, and emails requesting information about how and where the county are sheltering the recovered remains. Nor did they answer questions about whether the county has the facilities and resources to handle the rising number of fatalities. With just one hospital and three mortuaries, it remains unclear where all those corpses will be temporarily stored and how soon they will be released to family members. Funerals are not yet on the horizon, Silva said. Even in the best of times, Hawaii has the custom of having funerals anywhere from a month to six months after the death. Amid Lahaina's, amid Lahaina's devastation, the Maria Lanakila Catholic Church itself suffered smoke damage, but its convent and school were destroyed. Pope Francis acknowledged the tragedy during his Sunday address to people gathered at the Vatican St. Peter's Square, saying that he desires to assure my prayers for the victims of the fires that devastated the island of Maui. 
Locally amid the gloom, faith leaders were focused on providing community and spiritual hope for congregants who lost homes and livelihoods. Some vowed to hold services on Sunday. We're hoping our church can be a beacon of hope when the time comes, the Reverend Barry Campbell said from Kihai, where his family has stayed since escaping Lahaina. He plans to hold services as soon as it's possible at Lahaina Baptist Church, which remains standing even if buildings around it were raised down to there. That's the thing our people really need, Campbell said, to be together. For now, many faith healers are mounting relief efforts, including turning houses of worship into temporary shelters. They are also delivering supplies to those in need and doing their best to help families connect with friends and relatives across an area with intermittent power and with reli- without reliable cell phone service. The Church of Latter-day Saints in Maui said five of its members died in the fires, including four from the same family. In the fire's aftermath, the church has transformed two meeting houses into shelters. The Reverend Jay Haynes, the pastor at Kahuli Baptist Church, said recovery will take many years. Our people just need to keep going, he said. The Chabad of Maui, which was under evacuation orders, was spared and is now sheltering evacuees, said Rabbi Mendy Krasjansky. As the fire raged, some of the faithful stood ready to move the temple's holy scrolls to safer grounds. We don't know why things happen, but we believe we have the strength to soldier on, he said. That was the case for Jack Zach Wasserman, who has been frantic about finding his uncle, David Hawley. Now in his 70s, his uncle uses a wheelchair after he had had a stroke, left, which left him mostly immobile more than a year ago. We just don't know where he is, which is definitely scary, said Wasserman, who lives in Southern California. Even before the fires, he wasn't always good about keeping in touch. Maybe it was just another one of those cases. Phone call after phone call from Wasserman, his siblings, and cousins have all gone unanswered. I still have hope, he said, unless somebody tells me otherwise. Then, after sharing his anguish, his family tried once more. This time there was an answer. Their uncle was alive. There you have it, the most devastating situation in Hawaii, on the island of Maui, and just a terrible, devastating loss as a result of wildfires. So this will continue to be a major topic in the national news. One good thing, though, there was a developing hurricane in the Pacific, which is headed for Hawaii, but that has been lessened and uh, will have little to no effect, allegedly, on Hawaii as it approaches because it has been downgraded significantly. All right, let's move. How about we take a look at sports at this point? something on the more uplifting side of things, and that is running back Ezekiel Elliott, former Ohio State star and Dallas Cowboys star, has signed with the Patriots on a one-year deal. And here's the article. Ezekiel Elliott has finally found a new home. Elliott, a three-time Pro Bowl and one-time All-Pro selection, who had played all seven 
of his seasons with the Dallas Cowboys, will sign a one-year deal with the New England Patriots worth up to $6 million, a person with knowledge of the situation confirmed to USA Today's Tyler Dragon. The person spoke under the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to comment publicly on the matter. The NFL Network was the first to report the news and also reported that Elliott will wear jersey number 15 for the Patriots, which was the number he wore gloriously at Ohio State University. About an hour before the news broke, he posted a message on social media that read, quote, 15, end quote. Elliot later confirmed the news in another message saying, quote, 1-5 all the way live, end quote. Elliot, at age 28, had been Dallas's workhorse running back, though he became expendable after Cowboys saw Tony Pollard emerged as an explosive weapon. Elliott's numbers have steadily declined with his 3.8 yards per carry average, 231 carries, and 876 yards rushing from last season, all marking career lows. He still scored 12 touchdowns, however, and factored significantly into the Cowboys' offense. Elliott ranks third all-time on Dallas's career rushing list with 8,262 yards, trailing only Emmett Smith and Tony Dorsett. In New England, Elliott joins a deep running backs room that already has Raymond A. Stevenson, who ran for 1,040 yards last season, and five touchdowns. All right, there you have it. Ezekiel Elliott from the Cowboys to the Patriots, which I personally believe will give the Patriots a much stronger offensive backfield. Well, friends, college football, the college football season is just around the corner and will begin later this month. And in the preseason rankings, for whatever that means, it has Georgia as number one. It says Georgia will begin its drive for an unprecedented college football championship three-peat as the number one team in the Associated Press preseason top 25. The Bulldogs received 60 of 63 first place votes in the poll released Monday to easily outpoint number two rated Michigan, which received two first place votes. And Michigan has its best preseason ranking since being number two in 91. Big Ten rival Ohio State, the Mighty Buckeyes, are ranked number three with one first place vote. Then two more Southeastern Conference teams join Georgia in the top five. Alabama at number four is the Crimson Tide's lowest ranking in more than a decade, and LSU starts the season at number five. All right, there you have it. A look at the preseason rankings for college football, which begins later this year. Now let's take a quick look at the standings in uh, Major League Baseball, especially the American League, where many of you are focused on the Boston Red Sox, who continue to struggle. Leading the East Division in the American League are the Baltimore Orioles, three games ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays. In third place is Toronto, and Boston, out of five teams in the division, ranks fourth. They are 11 and one-half games behind the Baltimore Orioles. However, a good sign, if you could look at it that way, they are two and a half games ahead of the Yankees out on, from the basement of that 
division. So you've got Baltimore, Tampa Bay, Toronto, then the Red Sox, and then the Yankees. In the Central Division, the Minnesota Twins lead the Cleveland Guardians by four and a half games. Detroit Tigers are in eighth place. In the West Division, the Texas Rangers lead that division by three and a half games over the Houston Astros. And Seattle is in third place, seven and one half games behind the lead. Well, friends, we've somewhat quickly come to the end of today's broadcast of the Tuesday, August 15th edition of the Cape Cod Times. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you again, as I mentioned previously, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashpee. Your weather today is not going to be that great, at least up through 1 o'clock, so do what you have to do. After that, if you need to get out and about. It's been my pleasure reading to you today, and I look forward to reading to you again next Tuesday. Until then, stay healthy, have a great day, and a great week. We'll see you soon. So long for now.